I want to, uh, I'm going to be sharing in uh, Matthew chapter 12 uh, about some of the uh, miracles that Jesus did. But before we get there, I want to set this up with the scripture from Isaiah chapter 35. And this is what's called one of the messianic scriptures that uh, speaks about what the Messiah will do when he's here. And it says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then, I notice this, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Now, if you'll remember that uh, when John the Baptist was in prison and he began to question, it was just like, what's going on? I'm in prison and it, this thing is not unfolding like I thought it was going to unfold. Uh, you know, I'm in prison. Jesus is out there. I, I don't see him sitting on the throne. I don't see the kingdom coming. Uh, what's going on? And so he sends disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one that was to come? Are we to look for another? And Jesus goes, uh, tells uh, John's disciples, he repeats this very scripture to them. He says, go back and tell John, this is what you're seeing. This is what's happening. That the uh, eyes of the blind have been opened, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, the lame are leaping like a deer, and the mute tongue is shouting for joy. And so then we, we pick up. So these were clearly signs that, that the, the, the Jewish people, the religious leaders were looking for that the Messiah, that the, the coming Messiah would be able to fulfill. And so we get to uh, Matthew chapter 12, and this is an incredible turning point in the gospel, in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we pick up in verse 22, it says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? What prompted them to say that? Why did they, I mean, he's already done some other miracles, but what prompted the, the, uh, the religious or the, the Jewish people at that time, the people, the multitudes, to say, could this be the son of David? Because they simply said that because they recognized from Jewish tradition that only... A, only the Messiah could cast out a demon that was mute. Only the Messiah could do that. Now, in, according to Jewish tradition, to, uh, to the Jewish tradition and the teachings of the Jews at that time, and we'll see this later on kind of validated in the scripture, that, that they were involved in exorcism as well. Their sons were involved in exorcism, which we'll read here a little further on. But... But according to their tradition, there were certain miracles, what they called ordinary miracles, if you can have an ordinary miracle, but there were certain ordinary miracles that the religious people could do, the, the Jewish people could do, but there were certain miracles that were ascribed to that only the Messiah could do. So when they see Jesus, uh, and, and let me just uh, you know, give you a little more background on this, on the way that they did this, so the way that exorcism was prescribed, there was kind of a way that it was prescribed, and we see that Jesus, again, validates that they were able, the Jewish people were able to cast out demons, even prior to Jesus coming, they were able to do it, uh, but 
there was one demon or one particular demon that they could not cast out that was limited to only the Messiah. When they would cast out a demon, first of all, they would, they would question the demon, and we see Jesus doing this. They would want to know the name of the demon, okay? And so we see Jesus, like uh, on the uh, Gadarene demoniac, asking the man what his name was, the man saying legion, and then Jesus dealing with the demon at that place, that point in time. And so, but when you had a mute that could not speak, a word could not tell them what the demon was, then it was just like an impossible task. And that's why the casting out of a mute demon was relegated or limited to only the Messiah. It was one of the signs that they couldn't find out what the demon's name was, therefore they weren't able to cast the demon out. I'm going to show you some more on that in just a moment. And so at this point in this story right here in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus cast out this demon uh, that is a mute, and the man both spoke, and he was able to see again. And the people said, could not this be the son of David? I mean, you know, what more proof do we need? I mean, this is what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that the Messiah would be able to cast out a mute demon. It says, and when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and let me just pause there for a second. Whose thoughts did he know? He didn't know the religious leaders' thoughts because he's already heard their words. He's already heard that they've already said that, you know, that this fellow does not cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, he's talking about the Jewish people at this point, He's been rejected, keep this in mind, okay? He's been, at this point, he's been rejected by the religious leaders. You know, when, when he says that Jesus knew their thoughts, and, and the people are thinking, you know, because the Pharisees just explained it. Well, of course, you know, that, uh, yeah, I mean, we know him. He's from Galilee. He's a carpenter. You know, sure, surely this is why he's able to cast out demons, because he's doing it by the chief of demons. He's doing it by Beelzebub. And it's like they reason this in their minds, and at this point, when this one given, God-given sign, there are actually three that we'll cover this morning, but this one particular God-given sign that only the Messiah would be able to cast out a mute demon, it happens right before them. The religious leaders reject him, and at that moment, the people reject him. And so you see, up until this time in Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus is going about, he's doing miracles. I mean, he's doing miracles that would cause anybody to, to believe. I mean, they were validating, the miracles were validating his ministry. But when they get to this point right here, and the religious leaders refuse to believe who he is, and the people refuse to believe who he is, you pick up in Matthew chapter 13, the very next passage, and the rest of the, the, the book of Matthew, 28 chapters in Matthew, up to verse uh, chapter 12, the religious leaders and everybody is just kind of like seeing these miracles and they're kind of believing and Jesus has got a following. And then in chapter 13, you'll read the disciples say to Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? What is this parable business? Why are you talking like this? And he says, to you, it is given to understand because you believe. But to those who do not believe, 
it's not given. It's hidden from them. It's going to be hidden from them from now on. And the rest of the book of Matthew, Jesus is speaking parable after parable after parable. Let's continue on. It says, uh, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom that's divided by itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. He goes on to say, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? He's saying that, you know, I mean, it doesn't make sense. What you're saying doesn't make sense. You're saying that I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, but if I'm doing that, I'm dividing the kingdom, I'm dividing Satan's kingdom, and how can he prosper? How can his kingdom continue to grow? It says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, listen to this, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age of coming. Jesus is saying, what you just did, I mean, you knew, you knew by tradition that when the Messiah comes that he would be able to cast out a mute demon and cause this man to both speak and hear again. And he says, and you rejected that. And you've accredited what God has done or the work of the Holy Spirit to the demonic. He says, that is a sin against the Holy Spirit, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he says that, you know, that sin will not be forgiven. And they, at that point, they had hardened their hearts. And guys, I'm going to just say this to us this morning, that it's so easy for us to hear a gospel message, hear the message of God. And I want you to just think back in, in your own life, you know, about those that came to you from time to time before you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior and how, you know, you sent them away or you said that you would think about it, not yet, not yet. But I want to just tell you that every time that we do that, when we send someone away, when we send a messenger of God away or when we send the Word of God away, our heart becomes just a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder. And sometimes it gets to the place where there's no turning back. And that's what uh, the book of Romans says in Romans chapter 1, that God has given them over to a reprobate heart, a hardening of the heart that uh, he's given up on them. I don't want God to give up on you or me. I don't want God to give up on anybody. I want to see the Holy Spirit at work. I want to see the Holy Spirit at work in this community. I want to see salvation come to this city. I believe that there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people that are just so close to hearing the Word of God and receiving the Word of God and coming to that saving grace. So as we, uh, let, let me just kind of move forward. I'm going to talk to you just uh, for a moment about, about three miracles that Jesus did. The first one was, uh, all of these are in, recorded in Matthew's gospel. The first one was the healing of a leper. Now, think about this. These are, only God can do these, these types of miracles. As I mentioned, there were, uh, well, let me just read this quote to you. It says that um, um, there were certain uh, 
miracles that were relegated to, to, the, uh, to the Messiah. And uh, I lost my spot. <laughs> oh, right here. Uh, sometimes, this quote, sometime prior to the coming of Jesus, the rabbis divided miracles into two separate categories. Those that, could, that anyone could perform if empowered to do so and those reserved only for the Messiah. As Yeshua performed both types of miracles during his first coming, there are three main miracles that would help the Jewish people recognize who the Messiah was when he came. There are three main miracles that were reserved for the Messiah that would help the Jewish people recognize who the Messiah was. The first one was a messianic miracle was the healing of a leper. The Mosaic law stated that a person could only be be defiled by a living human being, and that would be touching a leper or to touch a leper. Uh, they were, you know, priests and, and rabbis were, you know, instructed by the law not to touch a leper. And think about this. This is a, a, this is a miracle. Jesus even points this out in, in Luke chapter, I think it's in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 5. He says that there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha, but none were healed. None were healed except for Naaman the Syrian. There were no Jewish people. There's not a record of a Jewish person being healed after the Mosaic law. Now, I understand that, you know, that Moses stuck his hand in his bosom and it came out leprous. He stuck it back in. This was, this was all prior to the giving of the law. The same thing happened to Miriam. The law was not complete when Miriam was struck with leprosy as she spoke against Moses. Uh, after the completion of the law, the fulfillment of, of the complete law, there's not a recorded incident of a leper being healed. It was reserved for Messiah. The second one was uh, the one that we just read about a dumb uh, and a mute demon. That the rabbi would ask the demon or so that person what the, the demon's name was and it would begin right there. The healing would begin with that. We talked about that in Matthew chapter 12. And the third one was the healing of a blind man. Only the Messiah, as we read in uh, Isaiah chapter 35, only the Messiah could heal the blind. And so the first messianic miracle, the Pharisees investigated Jesus. This is the, the messianic miracle of healing a leper. The th uh, second uh, messianic miracle was uh, casting out the mute spirit. And at that point, they rejected him as being Messiah. And the third messianic uh, miracle, they rejected the individual that had received the miracle. Remember in John chapter 9, when they're asking the guy, they said, you know, how'd you get healed? And he says, you know, I don't know, somebody touched me, somebody, you know, made spit, put it in my eyes, and mud and spit it in my eyes, and uh, healed me. And and uh, even after they go back and they keep inquiring, how did you get healed? How did you get healed? And they said, you know, he finally said to the guys, are you going to be his disciple? And then they said to him, you know, you were altogether born in sin and, and we're casting you out. We're not even believing you. We don't believe you are the miracle. And so they rejected, rejected the miracle, re rejected the Messiah and rejected the miracle as well. Now, let me, let me just kind of like, you know, I, I know some of you are probably thinking, you know, I don't know if I see that in the scripture, but let me give you another example. And this is from uh, Mark chapter 9. One of the crowd answered uh, and said, Teacher, I brought uh, you my son. He says, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whoever or wherever 
it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams at the mouth, he gnashes at his teeth and becomes rigid. rigid. So I spoke to your disciples. Let me back up. Verse 17, look at it again. He says, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. Now that's what he just healed in Matthew chapter 12, okay? A miracle that's only relegated, as Isaiah 35 says, only given to the Messiah. And he says, teacher, this man says, teacher, I brought, I brought my son to you. He has a mute spirit. And it seizes him and throws him down and foams at the mouth. He gnashes at the teeth. He becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me now. You know what? When we read that scripture, and all of us have heard teachings on this passage of scripture, that the problem was that the disciples didn't have enough faith. They, didn't, they, couldn't, they had to work up their faith. They couldn't get their faith up. You didn't have enough faith to cast it out. You didn't have, you know, you guys got to, you, you need to go get some more faith. And then this will work. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know, oh, faithless generation. He says, uh, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me now. And they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So that he asked the father, how long has, he, has, he, has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he throws him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. We understand that that's what Satan's job is, to rob, to steal, to kill and destroy. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose, and he rose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing by, but by prayer and fasting. So let me just back up to this statement about the uh, unbelieving, faithless generation. If the people of Israel knew back in Matthew chapter 12, and the religious leaders also knew back in Matthew chapter 12, that only the Messiah could cast out a mute spirit, what was Jesus saying? What was he saying to the, the disciples? Wasn't he saying, you know the tradition. You know what miracles are relegated to the Messiah. You know, and don't you believe in me? You, you know, it's not until, this is in chapter this is in chapter uh, 12 and uh, I think at 15 of, of Matthew, but it's not until later on in Matthew's gospel that when Jesus, it's after this miracle right here that uh, Peter is asked the question, finally, who do men, 
who do men say that I am? And Peter began to answer. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets raised from the dead. And he says, who do you say that I am, Peter? He says, you're the Messiah. At that point, bingo, it goes off. But at this point right here, if Peter had known that only the Messiah could cast out this kind of spirit, you know, that's what Jesus is saying to him. You know, don't you recognize who I am? You know the traditions of the Father. You know what the Scripture says about uh, casting out the mute spirit. And don't you believe at this point, don't, how, how long have I been with you? You still don't believe that I'm the Messiah is what they were saying. And then it goes on to say, and I, I love this right here, because, guys, it all comes down to this right here. I love what Jesus says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today. I mean, we don't have power. And maybe the disciples, when they went out two by two and they came back and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. You know, maybe they started thinking that, hey, I got it going. I got it going now. I remember that, uh, I, I think it was, uh, and I, I can't remember the guy's name, but I think it was, um, I think the guy's name was Buckingham, and I can't remember his uh, first name. But he received a telephone call one day from a lady that says, and he was a pastor, he says, uh, it's Pastor Buckingham, you believe in the Bible? He's like, yeah. And he says, uh, she says to him, and, and this guy is uh, kind of a mainline conservative kind of a guy, and she says, well, how about this part in the book of James that says, uh, you shall lay your hands on the sick and pray for the sick and the sick will recover. She said, do you believe that? And he paused for a second and he said, uh, yeah. And uh, she said, well, I'm sick. I want you to come over and lay hands on me, anoint me with oil and, and heal me. And, of course, you know, he's never done anything like that's the part of the Bible that, you know, was sealed together, that he never read, never, never listened to, was never obedient to. But he thought, you know what, she's calling me, and so I'm going to go. And so uh, he's driving over, and he's thinking, oil, oil, I don't have oil. I don't have oil. What do I use, you know? And so uh, he stopped at the store, and, you know, he goes down the aisle, and he's looking at Crisco and, you know, all of these other oils that are there, motor oil, I guess, and everything that's got oil in it, and he buys a bottle of olive oil, and he goes up, and he's just saying that, you know, he didn't have much faith at all, but he goes into the house, and he doesn't even know how to do it. Puts oil on her, and praise God, heal her, and I mean, it's just like, bam, she's just like healed. And it's just like, he's more shocked than anybody. It's like, how'd that happen? How'd this happen? And so he walks out, he struts out, and he takes that little bottle of oil and he throws it in on the dashboard and he says, Lord, take me to the sick. You know, I'm ready. I'm pumped. I'm ready to heal the sick. And maybe the disciples were thinking the same thing. You know, we got it. We got it going on right now. But Jesus says, bring him to me. And Jesus also said, you can do nothing. You can do nothing by yourself. And so when we start thinking that we can do something, you know, we're, we're missing it. All of the power, we don't have power. There's no power within us. All the power that we have comes from him. And we just pass it on. We're just like, you know, the conduit for the Holy Spirit to work through. It's not our power, okay? And so then we move on. I, you know, we, we cover those two, but, you know, we get to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. And again, the, you know, Jesus is continually 
faced with this rejection, just the rejection. You remember in Matthew chapter 21, he's going up, and the little kids are shouting, Hosanna, 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 save, I pray. And uh, that is a, uh, that was a messianic psalm, comes from Psalm 118, that they recognized that when the Messiah would come, this is what they would say. They, it would be like a song that they would sing, a song of worship and praise to the Messiah. When the religious leaders heard the children singing that, he, they said, stop them. Stop the kids from saying that. Why? Because they did not believe that he was the Messiah. They had rejected him as being Messiah. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, I promise you, the very stones on the street will rise up and they will begin to cry out that I am the Messiah. And he's not denying it. And then we get to Matthew chapter 23 and in Jesus is, uh, this is just a few days before his death, and he's riding around the city, uh, comes to the city, Matthew 23, 37, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you as a, as, uh, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. You continue to reject and reject and reject. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know when they say that? You know when they actually say that? Well, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 16, we see the preparation, the armies gathering together for the battle of Armageddon. We read in Zechariah chapter 12, that at that moment when these armies are coming against Jerusalem and they're surrounding the city, and all of a sudden, uh, Zechariah records it like this, that the house of David, it says that they will, they will look up and they will mourn for him like one mourns for his only lost son. And they will look up into the heavens and they will see him. And I believe at that moment the entire nation and I believe that this is probably part of the promise that the entire nation, not just a handful, because God's always got a handful, we understand that there's always going to be a remnant people. There's always a remnant people that, uh, that will receive the Lord. There's a remnant people today. We call them Messianic believers. But at that moment, at that time, the entire nation is going to say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, and he is going to come. In Luke chapter 19, wrapping this up, uh, he says that, uh, you know, that we see that Satan is always trying to stop this work of God. And he's always at war. He's always at war against the Jewish people. That's why we re you can read about it in the news any day and every day that there's something going on with Israel or about Israel. And because he's trying to stop, he's, he's interested in annihilating. You know, when... when uh, um, Abedinejab, I think that's a, the guy's name from Iran, when he gets up and he says that he wants to see Israel annihilated, you know what's motivating that? The same spirit that motivated Pharaoh to start killing male children at the time that Moses was born. It's the same spirit, it's that spirit of Antichrist, that same spirit that motivated Herod to try to kill all of the male children in uh, Bethlehem at the time that Jesus was born. There is a, it's the same spirit that motivated Hitler to put six million Jews in prison and concentration 
concentration camps and trying to kill them because he understands that if he can kill, if he can wipe out the Jewish nation, he extends his time. And uh, I, I'm taking a little uh, sidetrack here, but I, guys, I want you to see this. When we look in, in the book of Revelation and we study the outpouring of God's wrath upon the world during the tribulation period, whether it's in the seal judgment or the trumpet judgment or in the bowl judgment, they're all the same thing. There's an attack upon the earth. There's an attack upon the trees. Now, I, I don't, I don't want to get in your backyard, um, but let me, okay? Because we have people in Santa Fe that love trees. And we have people that, I mean, seriously, that will go out and just embrace trees. And, and they love trees. And I like trees, too. But, you know, I'm not worshiping the creation. I'm worshiping the creator. But when we look at every one of these plagues, there is a plague upon the trees, upon the grass, upon the water. Uh, I mean, you see it on the sides of buses. When you drive down Santa Fe, what's the, what's the uh, advertisement say? Every drop counts, right? And so, you know, uh, at the end of the age, though, there's going to be an attack upon the, uh, the water. There's going to be one of the judgments is upon the fresh water. Another judgment is upon the sea. And how many of you have noticed this, that uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a story about Congress, maybe we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about trying to invent the, uh, the Armageddon, the Bruce Willis kind of a thing, you know, the rocket that's going to go into outer space when an asteroid is coming uh, to the Earth. We're going to send a rocket out there and explode that thing before it actually hits. You know, the, one of the plagues is that asteroids and meteors will come and, and pound the Earth, and, and it says in the first, in the, in the sealed judgments, that one-third of the Earth is destroyed, whether it's by... Uh, by the forest or by the sea or water or meteors, you know, and it seems like there's this undermining uh, thing that the enemy has got going that if I can save the planet, I can extend my time here, but if I see the planet starting to fail and if I see all of these things starting to happen on the planet, this attack that comes upon the planet, I know that my time is short. And so he's doing everything that he possibly can to keep himself in power. So what do we do? How do we respond? Luke 19, and I'm going to wrap this up. I know that I said that earlier, and some of you are saying, okay, get to it. Here we go. All right. He said, um, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country. This is Jesus. talking about Jesus. This is the parable about himself. Jesus is the nobleman that went into the far country to receive a kingdom and to return. And he called ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said to them, occupy till I come. Okay, so Jesus has gone away. He's left us an instruction. He says, occupy till I come. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the first thing it means is that, and these are just some, uh, this is, it's not a conclusive list, but it's, a, it's right at the top of the list of things that you and I should be doing. Number one, we need to be praying. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Finally, brothers, pray for us now listen to this right here. This is so good. He says, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. 
And so Paul is saying, pray that the word of God would be advanced. We need to pray that the word of God would be advanced in this community. I mean, there's a lot of people that are living in darkness, and God wants to deliver them from the power of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. And then he says to bless those who curse you and pray for those that mistreat you. And not like, okay, God, just get him. Get him, God. You know, not that kind of prayer, but Lord, bless my brother. And then the, I like this one right here. He says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. And I, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to be active in sharing our faith. Now, I want us to be a little more active than this. The guy's telling me, he says, I witnessed to somebody the other day. I said, oh, how'd that go? He said, well, he, uh, he sneezed, and I said, God bless you. I was like, seriously? He said, well, I'm better because I used to say kazuntite when they'd sneeze. So I'm getting bolder. I'm getting more bold in my witness. No, you know, he wants us to talk to people about Jesus, what Jesus has done in your life. You know, tell the story of what Jesus has done for you. So we pray and we preach. Second uh, Timothy says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So preach the word, be prepared, be, you, know, you need to know the word of God, you need to read the word of God so that you can share the word of God. And you know, the, this is so much the heart of God that even after the rapture of the church and God is just dealing with, you know, the population of the world during that seven tribula or seven years of tribulation, the heart of God is still preach, preach, preach. Tell people about my son. Tell them about salvation. Tell them how they can be saved. And he starts out in Revelation chapter uh, 7 with 144,000 that have this seal of God, and God releases them into the four corners of the earth so they can share the gospel message. By the time we get to Revelation chapter 11, Got the two witnesses, the two olive branches there that are, I mean, they are just like laying it on. They're sharing the word of God and they're, they're catching, you know, they, they're receiving hell and death threats and everything else from the world around them that hate them because of the message that they're sharing. And then we see the heart of God in Revelation chapter 14 again. He says, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. That even an angel is preaching the gospel uh, to all those that dwell on the earth, to every tribe and na uh, nation and tongue and people and language, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, for the hour of, of his judgment has come. And you can just see the heart of God. Just you know, the, we, we look at this, and I, my mind immediately goes to Peter where it says that God is not willing that any should perish. So we pray and we preach and we proclaim. And there's a little bit difference between preaching is just telling people about Jesus, but proclaiming is talking about the good things that God has done in your life. You know, I've said this a thousand times from here, but people might be able to refute you. They might be able to uh, argue doctrine with you or scripture with you. They cannot argue what God has done in your life. No one can argue that. And that is the proclamation. Listen to what David said. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit. Some of you may find yourself in that place today. Out of the mud and the mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise for our God. And he continues on. He says, 
I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips. Uh, David said, I'm not going to be quiet about this. Don't try to get me to be quiet about this because I'm going to tell you what God has done in my life. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. And some of you have. God has done some great things in some of your lives, and you've never told anybody about it. You need to proclaim the goodness of God, what God has done. And then we read in 1 John chapter 1, and notice, this word appears three times in three uh, verses. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which our eyes have seen, which uh, we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, that life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And that can be your proclamation as well.